As a relatively new believer, this was one of the first passages that I sort of sat down with and sought to wring all the truth I could find from the text. I remember at that particular moment in my new journey with Jesus being somewhat perplexed by this reality wherein there were those who said, I believe in God, but who were unaffected or unchanged by that experience. I hoped to find something here in Hebrews 11, a definition of faith that would help me to distinguish between that level of faith or that level of believing and the kind of belief with depth that had so radically shaped my life from the very beginning of my walk with Jesus. What I did not find here was a Webster's Dictionary type of definition for the word faith. But I did find certain observations about faith, what faith is and how it operates in the life of the believer, that helped me to make not only that distinction, but to better appreciate the gift of faith that God has entrusted to us. The Bible says quite clearly, and it's sort of the mantra of kingdom people, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, And the Bible goes on to say that even that faith is the gift of God to us. It is not the product of human wisdom. It is not the result of our efforts or our labors to better know God. It is that God opens our heart and grants the gift of faith that we might believe on him. We are saved by grace. That is to say that we are altogether undeserving of the salvation that God has afforded us through his son, Jesus Christ. Every person here, and for that matter, every person out there, is deserving of eternal death and eternity and the lake of fire that flows with brimstone where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That's what we deserve. But by grace, God has afforded for us or to us a way of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith, which is to say that faith is the means through which or the mechanism for God's granting or conferring salvation. By faith, we are joined together with Jesus in his death and resurrection. By faith, our sin is carried away. By faith, the righteousness of Jesus is accredited to our account. By faith, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. By faith, we have become the recipients of the promise of God's heaven for an eternity. By faith, we receive the gift of eternal life. By faith, we we receive the gift of abundant life. So with all that said, what in the world is faith? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Look at verse 1. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Again, we're not going to get a Webster's Dictionary style definition. We get these observations. Specifically here in verse 1, that faith is hope made real. That what we hope for and we long for, faith is the confidence that we have that these hopes and dreams and ambitions, ambitions will come to be. Faith is confidence in the promise of the unseen, the reality of what is hoped for, the proof 
of what is not seen. The evidence we hold in our heart, our conviction, our confidence that though we cannot see it, we are trusting the promise of the unseen God. This will come to pass. That is what faith is. It is as though the preacher points over at something else and says, that's what faith is. Further explanation is provided in verse number two. For our ancestors won God's approval by it which is to say that salvation has always come in the same way. That's a central point here in Hebrews chapter 11. We've dealt with for several chapters this comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant. And it's a common question that I get, how were people saved in the Old Testament or under the old covenant? The answer is people have always been saved the same way. In the same way that from our historical point of view, we are saved by faith in what God has done through his son Jesus, his death on the cross, and his being raised from the dead on the third day. Those saints of old, those under the old covenant during that period of time we might refer to as the Old Testament were saved by faith that there would come a day when God would fulfill the promise to send a Messiah who would provide a suitable substitutionary atonement for our sin. He would do so in his only begotten son. Our ancestors won God's approval by it. We should note here that you and I cannot win the approval of God. You can do nothing on your own to win the approval of God. I can do nothing that would win the approval of God. You've never done anything that would win the approval of God, nor will you do anything that will win the approval of God, and neither have I. But by faith, we may lay hold to the approval of God that Jesus has won on our behalf. By faith, the ancestors won the approval of God. And by faith, we may win the approval of God, not on the basis of the things that we have done, but what Jesus has done for us. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen For our ancestors won God's approval by it. Now, verse 3 is what really excites me, and I, I hope that you'll see all that is here for us in this simple verse. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by God's command. Now, this is not saying that it's a faith assumption that God created the universe by his command. What's being described here is sort of like this. If I hand you a laptop, given the complexity of that machine and its technology and the mere fact that you hold it in your hands, you can logically deduce that somewhere someone made that laptop. Someone with some intellect put that laptop together. And they used certain parts, and they pieced it together, and they've now sold it to you for far more than it costs to construct. You can logically deduce that. In other words, if you will use your mind, if you will think, you can come to the conclusion that the only reasonable answer for our existence is that there is an unseen God that pre-exists our earthly experience, our observation of creation must acknowledge somewhere along the way, if we employ common sense reason, if we're rational about what we observe in the creation, 
we must necessarily come to the conclusion that there is a creator God who has fashioned the world as it is. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by God's command so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. Now, some time ago, especially in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we really drilled down on the idea that your faith should influence the way you think. Our worldview, our outlook, our perspectives on life should be gospel-shaped. The fact that Jesus has taken hold of our heart, that he has radically changed our life, should have a radical impact on the way we regard the world. We don't see the circumstances of life the way the rest of the world sees the circumstances of life because we've been given a new lens through which to see our circumstances, namely the gospel. Your faith should influence the way you think. But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that not only does your faith influence your thinking, but that your thinking stands to influence your faith. Now think with me for just a moment. The logical conclusion, the reasonable deduction of your observations in creation is that there is a creator God, an unseen God who pre-exists what we observe in nature. We're, we're approaching one of those special times of the year for me and my house, deer season. It is a special time for a number of reasons. And, and when I really need to spiritualize deer season for the purposes of grace from my wife, I can talk about the glory of God in creation. And that's funny, I get, but there's a very real sense in which you may meet with God in the outdoors because his handiwork is so apparent. My, my, my favorite special season of the year is not deer season, but turkey season. Because during that time of the year, in the spring of the year, at daybreak, when the world wakes up and the birds begin to chirp and, and the bugs are buzzing and the sun is coming up over the horizon, if you can't see the hand of God at work in creation, the heavens and the earth telling the glory of God in a setting like that, there's just no hope for you, right? The logical deduction, the logical, the rational conclusion that we come to, given what we observe, is that there exists an unseen creator God who has fashioned the world as we know and experience. Now, let's go further than that. I want you to note here in verse 3 that the preacher of Hebrews does not go further than that. He's assuming that there would be agreement within the congregation. And I might assume, too, only that might be a dangerous assumption. So let's go further. We've come to a logical, reasonable conclusion that a creator God exists and existed before all that we observe or experience. But what of other creation accounts? What of other religious systems that claim to be led by, directed by, divine figures who themselves claim to be the creator of the universe or the world as we know it? There is a single characteristic trait that distinguishes our faith commitment to Jesus from those other religious systems. It is the simple fact that Jesus, as the figurehead of our faith, died and rose again. 
and his resurrection attest to the truthfulness of everything he said in his ministry and his exclusive right to the name which is above every name, that at the end of days every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I ran into one of our families uh, this past week, just stopped in to sort of check in, saw them out. They were telling me that this past Easter service I had a harsh critic in the congregation, and it was their five-year-old grandson. And at the point in time in the sermon when I said that Jesus was dead and in the grave and he rose again, he began very vigorously to tug at his father's shirt tail and say, he's lying. People don't die and just come back to life. And on some level, he was exactly right. People don't just die and come back to life. But brothers and sisters, Jesus did. And that fact in and of itself, a well-attested historical moment, that fact in and of itself attests to the truthfulness of all that Jesus ever said in his exclusive right to the name above every name. Now here's what I want you to see. In the same way that our faith should influence our thinking, our thinking stands to influence our faith. Contrary to popular belief, faith and reason are not at odds. In fact, if we are to take this verse at face value, our ability to think critically about what God has done in creation, our ability to come to rational conclusions, to reach logical deductions on the basis of what we see and our experience is foundational to our faith, helping to undergird and, and build our confidence that what we have hoped for, what is yet unseen, will indeed come to pass. The call of this verse and and many others here in the book of Hebrews is to trust the promises of an unseen God, even when what you see around you doesn't, in your mind, measure up to what you've come to hope for or expect. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by God's command so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. Know how what is seen and what is invisible or unseen are set at odds here in verse 3. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. In verse 4, the Bible says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he's dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he didn't experience death, and he was not to be found because God took him away. For prior to his removal, he was approved since he had pleased God. I mentioned to you in the beginning of our look at the passage, how I'd come to this passage years ago now in hopes of finding the ability to distinguish between that superficial faith that does not seem to impact the life of one who holds it versus the experience of those who seem to have been so profoundly impacted or changed by their faith in Jesus. We're not given the vocabulary for this kind of distinction, but we are given some illustrations. And what you'll see in every example of faith exercised in Hebrews chapter 11, this hall of faith that's run all the way through this chapter, is that in each instance, saving faith was a call to action. It moved the head, the heart, and the hands of each person who possessed it. 
In the case of Abel, he offered God a better sacrifice. His worship was made acceptable to God by his faith in the existence of God. Brothers and sisters, we can't even worship in an acceptable way apart from faith in Jesus. You can be moved by beautiful music, and oh, how we've had beautiful music. But apart from faith in Jesus Christ, your worship is unacceptable before the Lord. Abel's offering was better than that of Cain's because it was offered in faith. In verse 5, Enoch is a man who is said to have walked with God, who experienced not death, for he was not to be found because God took him away. Prior to his removal, the Bible says he won the approval of God by his faith. Enoch is a man said to have walked with God. In order to walk with Jesus, to bear any appearance whatsoever of the kind of values, the kind of lifestyle that Christ would have us to live, if you are to be salt and light, worthy of your calling, you must do so by faith. There is nothing that we can do cut off from the vine as its branches. We need faith in Jesus for mere existence that would bring him honor and glory, let alone to receive the full benefits of the salvation he's afforded us by his shed blood. Verse 7, we have this discussion of Noah, and we'll deal with some of these characters in greater detail in the weeks to come. Noah was warned about what was not yet seen, and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Noah received the inheritance of righteousness. All of the gifts and promises of God for us are bound up in Jesus, and all of the gifts and promises of God are to be received by the people of God through faith reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not yet seen. Look now to verse 6. The Bible says, now without faith, it is impossible to please God. In the absence of faith, you can't win the favor of God. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no hope for our salvation. Apart from faith in Christ, there is Nothing good for us. There is no good in us, and there is no prospect of improvement in the days that are ahead. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You might be surprised that in the culture, you could say, without faith, it is impossible to please God, and within most circles, that would be a well-accepted principle or truth. We sort of dealt with this in talking through prayer some time back. We talked about the way people talk about prayer as though prayer itself bears the power, as though it's this inner force that we're conjuring up as we pray, and this collective inner force when we pray in great sincerity turns the circumstances of our life or grants peace and relief from anxiety for those that we care for or concern for. People say things like sending thoughts and prayers and good vibes and various other things, which is always a little perplexing to me. There is, in reality, no power in prayer. The prayer is in the God to whom we pray. And something similar might be said of faith. Faith is often talked about as though 
The power of faith is in the one's sincerity or depth of conviction. If we only have enough sincerity, if we are only convinced and convicted with enough depth, that faith in and of itself will move the mountain and change the circumstances of our life. And I would simply say to you that your faith in and of itself cannot save you. In fact, your faith in and of itself cannot do anything. It is the object of that faith that stands to move the mountains, grant salvation, and turn the circumstances of our life. Verse 6 is clear. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and reward those who seek him. Your faith has no power. But the object of your faith, if his name is Jesus, has the power to seek out and to save, to move the mountains and to turn the circumstances of your life. Faith is not this abstract thing where we're exercising sincerity and depth of conviction, you may be sincere and you may be sincerely wrong. You may have deep convictions about things that are just crazy. In fact, if Facebook is any indication, there's a whole world of people with sincere convictions about things that are just crazy. But if you have depth of conviction, if you have believed in sincerity in your heart, that Jesus Christ is God's only Son, that He has died as the substitute for your sin, that He rose again the third day. If there is depth and substance about that faith, if it is the manner of faith that moves your head and heart and hands to action, brothers and sisters, the object of your faith is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and there is no circumstance of your life or this life that isn't beneath his feet and the power of his great lordship. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. There are two things that must be believed, according to verse number six, in order to draw near to God. One, there must be the belief that he exists. That seems to be something of a shared conviction in our culture. Even where it's not well understood, most are willing to accept or acknowledge the high probability, if not the outright confidence, that there indeed exists a God in heaven. But I hear in conversation this sort of utilitarian approach to the gospel or this utilitarian approach to, the, to God and his existence. What I mean by that is we want the religious system that serves our benefit or that works for us. Even in conversation, I'm hearing more and more people saying things like, this just doesn't work for me. The gospel just does not work for me or Christianity does not work for me. What you should be asking is, is the Christian gospel true? Because if it is, it does not matter if it works for you. You are left but to reckon with the reality that Jesus is Lord of all and you are subject to his authority. If it, does, if it is not true, then it is altogether irrelevant. But that is the question that must be asked, not its functionality in my life. You must believe not only that he exists, 
but that he rewards those who seek after him, which is by implication to say that he punishes those who reject him out of hand. There is at the end of this life a great day of judgment that is coming. It has been appointed unto man to die and then the judgment. And on that day, on that day, we might receive the salvation afforded us through Jesus on the basis of his righteousness or the full force of God's wrath against our sin given our brokenness. We will be uncovered apart from Christ in that day against the wrath that is to come. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Now in verse 7, I want to go back here once more, and I want to show you this little conflict that I see existing in our passage. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. Noah had never seen rain, and he lived in the desert. God said, build a boat. If I'm Noah when God said, build a boat, question number one is, can you explain this phenomenon of rain? What will this look like? What will this experience be? And Noah, on the basis of God's call, the call of an unseen God, built a boat to prepare for an experience that was yet unseen. There was nothing in Noah's life or experience, nothing observable, nothing visible to Noah that he could have witnessed or experienced that could have prepared him for what God promised the future held. Back in verse number three, the Bible says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by God's command so that what is seen has been made from things that are not, are not visible or are unseen. We've been, we've been coached by the culture to think that the conflict exists between faith and reason. What we found is that reason actually influences and can embolden and encourage our faith. The conflict is not with faith and reason. The conflict is with the unseen and the seen. Trusting the promises of an unseen God when what we see in the circumstances of our life, we can't make accord with what we have received from God. And we have a myriad of examples of this working itself out in our personal experience. When I, when I was a teenager, I, I, I once bungee jumped. I don't, I don't do that kind of thing anymore. If I do, I make sure it's not that high, right? But I, I can remember standing with a friend at the base, and we were looking up, and it's amazing how it looks different from the ground to the top than it does from the top to the ground. And you're standing around and you're talking with your friends about how easy this will be, how you're not afraid of this great jump, and sort of beating your chest like a high school boy would do. And then the first indication that you begin to get that this could be dangerous as you move toward the line in that firm commitment that you're really going to do this is the form that they make you sign that says, if you die, your parents won't hold them liable for your death. And then you begin to sort of go up the stairs. Now, at the base, you believe this is easy peasy, right? I've seen some other people go and didn't look too bad. Nope, no one's falling and crashing and dying. No ambulances around. This is nothing to it. But then you get to the top. And somehow the conviction that you held at the bottom, at the base, 
it's, it's almost entirely dispelled by what you see with your eyes from the top now looking down. And they say it's not the fall you worry about so much as that sudden stop on the other end. And eventually you just jump because, well, you'd rather be dead than have to swallow your pride and come back down in front of your buddies as a teenage boy. But there are all sorts of examples of this kind of experience in our life where there may be a deeply held conviction, but somewhere along the way, what we see begins to call that conviction into question. You sit down with the doctor and he says, we're going to do a minor procedure. Minor procedures are the procedures that someone else has, but never me personally. And you may believe that minor procedure business until you get to the hospital on that day. And they begin to shave parts of your body and various instruments begin to come out and there begins to be all of this conversation about what you might experience in the interim between consciousness. And then they roll you back into that room barely dressed. It's very cold and it smells funny. There are people in lab coats everywhere with masks and other instruments attached to their body. And you begin to wonder, is this minor procedure really going to end the way I had intended this minor procedure end. It's not that you've thought too deeply about this experience. It is that you are now seeing things that create concern in your heart that what you, what you had trusted without visibility has now been called into question by the very real circumstances of your life. Now remember, the major theolo- the practical theme of the book of Hebrews is that we would persevere. The preacher of Hebrews' desire for us is that we would run the race well, that we would finish our last day, and with our last breath, we would make much of Jesus. The call of Hebrews chapter 11, verse after verse after verse after verse is this. Even when the circumstances of your life don't seem to accord with the very real, seen, visible experiences you're now undergoing, you can trust the promises of God. I I realize, and, and we've sort of celebrated this call to Christ in the book of Hebrews today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as in the day of rebellion, but come to him, come to him. And we've acknowledged certain limitations on that window of opportunity. The offer of salvation is a one-day offer only. It's good for one day. Today is the day of salvation. Your window of opportunity may be cut short by your natural life. One day you will die, and your occasion for responding to the gospel will be over. COVID is among the natural circumstances of life that may stand to limit that for us at the present hour. That window of opportunity is limited by the promise of Jesus' second coming. One day Christ is going to come again. That is a yet unseen, unfulfilled promise. But you can rest assured the unseen God can be trusted with that promise yet to come. One day Christ is coming again. And that window of opportunity for responding to the gospel will have forever, eternally closed. But I I, I want you to know it's, it's not just the there and then. It's not, just, it's not just that we need Jesus to die well. Brothers and sisters, we need Jesus just to live. The preacher is writing here to a group of people who are suffering persecution. The circumstances of their life are dire. They are heartbreaking. And if you don't settle well in your heart now, before that inevitable experience of darkness and death and loss comes for you, 
If you don't anchor your soul behind the veil in the body of Jesus, dead and bled for you, if you don't settle in your heart a deep and abiding confidence in the resurrected Christ as Lord over all of our life, good and faithful to keep his promise, if you don't resolve to walk each day etched in your heart and burned upon your mind that he is good and faithful, a friend who sticks closer than a brother, that he goes with us through the valley of the shadow of death, that indeed he keeps his promise to his people. If you don't settle that now, I don't know how you'll make it in the day of difficulty. It's not just that we need Jesus to die well. We need Jesus to live. I see people around us often these days suffering through circumstances, and I wonder how anyone apart from Jesus could bear with what is so often a painful existence in the here and now. What's afforded us, the invitation to faith here, is not just that we would be prepared to die well, but that we would be prepared to live well by faith in Jesus Christ, running our race well, persevering even until the end. By faith, the believer is approved by God, approved by God against that day that as we stand before the judgment seat of God, God might be pleased in us, not for things that we have done, but because of the finished work of his son, that we might be indwelt in the here and now by the power of his Holy Spirit, that we might walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Brothers and sisters, come to him, not just for safety and protection on the day of death, for his abiding presence in your life in the here and now. You may not know it at this moment, and you may be among the few who have been so blessed as to escape heartache and calamity and tragedy in the here and now, but rest assured, your day is coming. The only hope for us on that day, and the only hope for us on capital T that day, is faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the privilege of considering these verses together as a body. I pray, God, that you would grant saving faith, that as a good and faithful shepherd that seeks out and saves the lost, you would call the names of those sheep that are not yet of this fold, that they would hear your voice and heed your call and come in repentance and faith. I, I pray that you would help us to examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith, that you would make by the direction of your Holy Spirit that distinction in our heart and minds between saving faith and a superficial experience that doesn't shape the actions of our head and heart and hands. God, move among us, I pray. Lord, I pray that you would save some in these next moments, that you'd grant conviction to those who are wondering and in sin. I pray for the church this morning that you would embolden our faith, God, that as we think about what we have observed in creation and the experiences of our life, although these don't offer us empirical evidence, there is evidence enough, God, that we would be emboldened and confident we entrust our soul to a good and faithful God. Lord, thank you, the unseen God, so visibly at work in our lives and in our church. I pray, God, that you would continue to work and move in that way. May there be visible 
action taken, visible steps taken as we respond to the preaching and teaching of your word. May it be that the world about us can look upon us and make the observation, those folks have been with Jesus. Grant it so, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.